Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. But the approach can't be that we try and do a zillion things every year and and do them all in a sort of half-assed way. Like, the approach has to be, you know, let's take a few things and really go deep and hard and make sure we're implementing them in a quality way. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters, And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, December 6th on the podcast, our last real podcast of the year, we will be previewing the four biggest housing storylines we predict will dominate our lives in 2020. And why are we doing four instead of five, Liam? Because we only have four and we're, we're breaking you know, conventional wisdom to say we have to do three or five or whatever. No, there's only four things you should care about. We got them for you. And we have the perfect guests to talk about what's coming up in 2020. We always have the perfect guests. And this it, time is no is no different. We have nope. uh, Ben Metcalf, uh, the now former director of the State Department of Housing and uh, Community Development. Uh, first three-time guest on the podcast. Uh, so congrats to Ben. We could get some sort of uh, avocado-related swag. This is like Ben Metcalf unplugged. He is no longer shackled by the rhetorical constraints of being the head of the state housing department. He can say whatever the hell he wants about whoever the hell he wants, whenever the hell he wants. Yeah, Uh, it's going to be like Andrew Dice Clay over here. First, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the year. This is this is big. This is our second annual avocado of the year award, um, which goes to. What you, the uh, housing news consumption public, voted as the most absurd California housing story of 2019. Liam and I uh, isolated four nominees we put on Twitter. Um, We each kind of had our covert favorites. And Um, both lost. Well, I was actually kind of rooting for the one that... Oh, okay. Yeah. Mine mine did not... No, yours yours lost pretty overwhelmingly. Yeah. What were the four nominees? So... Uh, we have um, musical superstar Kanye West tried to get involved in the affordable housing business in California uh, and put up some Star Wars themed uh, sort of houses, um, prototypes, but he did not get building permits for his project and it was summarily dismissed in Los Angeles. That was number one. Uh, number two, um, a, uh, a ADU, Casita, in San Jose. Uh, this is was the up- one you were rooting for. No, this was not. I wanted Kanye. Uh, I, I like this. Oh. But an ADU okay. casita in San Jose going for the low, low price of $1,500 a month to rent. Sounds great. Could p- put some humans in there. Uh, but no, this was a casita for actually where cats lived for $1,500 a month. So a yeah. catsita, if you will. Um, Which is 1500 a month equal to my rent for a... Actually, a little more than my rent for a one-bedroom apartment here in Sacramento. And it, you are, it, are, in fact, not a cat. The third avocado, which I thought was actually going to win, mm-hmm. um, was uh, what we called Boulder Gate, which was when a neighborhood in San Francisco with um, people experiencing homelessness on the sidewalk, the residents banded together with a GoFundMe and uh, started putting giant boulders on the sidewalk to get rid of um, the homeless encampment. Um, and then there was activists who bold, rolled the boulders away, yes. uh, and then they were rolled back in a very comical uh, a thing that's going on in my head right now about people rolling boulders in, uh, through a variety of uh, means. I'm very surprised you didn't use the word Sisyphean right there. I, I, was, I knew you were going to, so 
All three of those stories, very absurd California housing stories, which each pointed to a different element of the housing crisis in its own uniquely, delightfully awful way, I would say. But the winner and the clear, overwhelming winner, to my surprise, and kind of the one I was secretly rooting for, takes us to God's country, San Diego. So uh, you have heard of uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm -hmm. You've heard of now YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. Now, though... We have another entry into the MB uh, milieu, and this is Yigby, yes, in God's backyard. A church in a suburban San Diego community uh, would had a big parking lot, as churches often do, would wanted to build affordable housing on that parking lot and went to the city and did all these sorts of things. But they learned a very, very, very unfortunate fact that stymied, thwarted their plans to do it, and that is parking requirements. So because this church had... I suppose a lot of pew, spa- pew space, uh, mm-hmm. they were unable, unable under city code in San Diego to build their affordable housing complex because they could not replace the parking that supposedly they would need uh, because they are a house of worship and people sit on pews there. We should say there might have been a little bit of an electioneering in yeah. the, the vote for this. The KPBS reporter uh, broke this story uh, this year, uh, Aaron, uh, Andrew Bowen, um, who is a friend of the pod. So thanks, Andrew, for all your Thank effort. you, Andrew. Yes. Uh, did a little bit of Twitter electioneering for this. Um, but regardless, great, great avocado, great story, and extremely absurd. Yes. The latest on the Yigby struggle... The city council now sounds amenable to changing the uh, pew parking ratio regulations. They haven't approved the change completely yet, but it seems like things are on on track uh, yes. for for that. So turning this avocado into guacamole, if you will. You know, you 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 warned me before this that you were going to, to say that, and I threatened to quit the podcast if you did. And you just went ahead and did it. But you're still here. I am. I have no choice now. I'm, I'm here for the rest of eternity. That can, any other parting thoughts on the avocado of the year? No, uh, I'm sure we'll have some more good ones to, to talk about in 2020. All right. Let's look ahead to 2020. We have a list of the four most important storylines that we anticipate will dominate the news in housing in 2020. We should have came up with kind of more pithy headlines for these, but I guess that would require a little more prediction than either of us are comfortable with. Mm. Um, let's start with number four, which I think these aren't you know ranked in any way. Actually, if I had to argue, I think this one actually would be the single most important issue that will continually get resurfaced in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is... Um, homelessness in California and particularly what governor what governor Gavin Newsom and possibly President Trump will be doing about it. Yeah, um you know any day now any week now well, we should expect to see the new national numbers on homelessness um they're going to be significantly higher in California uh simply because we've seen individual or individual cities and regions put up you know double digit percentage increases and so expect to see a gigantic increase over the 130,000 number that we've been using for this entire year in terms of the homeless population right um so that's going to bring more attention to this very very soon sure and uh there was some recent polling by the Public Policy Institute of California that I found especially interesting, which was yeah. basically for the first time since they started doing this type of polling, asking Californians what the most important issue confronting the state was, 
homelessness was number one. It was tied for number one with right. jobs, which is kind of right. always the right. the the top um, vote getter. Um, but it has become such a visible issue in so many parts of California. There is a huge expectation among voters here that something has to be done about this because I am not seeing progress. Now, I should note, too, uh, we did a poll, the L.A. Times, uh, 95% of folks in L.A. County were concerned about homelessness. I mean, that's like that's a number you don't see on any anything, any issue ever. Um, and so, uh, yes, a huge concern statewide. Uh, and obviously in certain regions like L.A. here, um, even even more so. Uh, and so the demand for for action or for something, uh, I think, is at an all time high. You know, your guys's poll also asked, you know, do you think local governments are spending money effectively um, in combating homelessness? And the answer was a resounding no. Um, I think statewide, increasingly people in terms of the level of state investment, uh, which we would expect next year is going to be a a big amount of money. This year, it was a pretty much unprecedented amount of money. The question of, I am uh, giving more money to governments to solve this issue, and I'm not seeing more progress. Local lawmakers and now Newsom are going to own that more and more. Totally. And I think one thing that we should keep in mind with a lot of the money that has been approved, uh, L.A. had a major bond measure uh, called Prop HHH that was to go towards permanent supportive housing. Voters here in California, although there was a delay, the legislature wanted to do it on their own, but voters here approved uh, a Proposition 2 for $2 billion statewide in permanent supportive housing. And the issue, though, I you know, I keep repeating permanent because this is this is housing that takes a while to actually get built. And so even yeah. though this, this, these, these numbers, voters approved this you know dramatic amount of funding, or at least dramatic compared to recent past, to try to address the the, the homelessness problem. Um, while the money may be going out the door, there are not actually no not ma- many, if any, of these houses have actually been built yet. And so, of course, you know, even though we have billions of dollars to to spend that we didn't before, um, you know, if they're not actually resulting in any any houses to be built immediately, then you know, why would you see a decrease in the homelessness population as a result of this new money being spent? And you can also obviously see from that perspective why voters would be upset because they have approved this money and it's not making much of a difference on the ground. And in fact, only thing that people can see are things getting worse. Regardless of what uh, may happen with a certain resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, this is going to be a major issue. But looming over all of this is rumors of potential federal intervention. Um, And we had some news um, in terms of how the Newsom administration is responding to those rumors. Sure. So there's this uh, uh, talk about some sort of quote unquote crackdown that the federal government would do on on housing in California. I guess, I mean, there's really very few details about what that would actually look like if you take as a guide some past pronouncements that the president administration has made. So a a new advisor that uh, the Trump administration uh, brought on uh, recently that has uh, argued for, I guess, a more um, uh, 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 draconian uh, is the word draconian, you want to say. Indeed, yeah. Approach yeah. to dealing with homeless folks, including uh, some uh, legal penalties, right? Things like that. Um, so uh, it's moving towards some sort of, I, I, it seems to be moving towards some sort of thing where there'd be, I guess, more policing in some way or, or rounding up folks. And, and that seems to be the kind of um, uh, action that's being telegraphed in some way, right? Again, not exactly sure. what it's going to look like, but some sort of 
some some sort of uh, penalty enforcement action. Yeah, I, enforcement I think action. you know, yeah, yeah. talking with homelessness advocates both in California and in Washington, I think there's real skepticism as to whether they're going to actually do large scale sweeps. Yeah. Um, in San Francisco yeah. and Los Angeles. But that is that is the fear. He's on very shaky legal ground if he was going to try to do something like that. And that's partly because of um, the Boise decision, which uh, was a decision by the uh, Ninth Circuit that basically said you can't criminalize uh, people sleeping on the street unless you have adequate shelter. You know, the question then is, well, if Trump decides to turn a federal armory outside of San Francisco into a shelter. Is that enough legal justification? And could he just do it anyway? But I don't know. People I've talked to here that they they expect something's going to happen, but they're not they don't think that it's going to be the type of, I think, um, draconian sweeps that uh, I think is what everybody kind of fears. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's but, let's talk about uh, yeah. like what Gavin has done in the last week or so to to preempt this, I guess. Right. So in an effort to try to preempt whatever it is the president uh, may be doing, uh, the governor uh, hired as a consultant or got a contract with um, uh, the previous uh, sort of top homelessness advisor in the uh, uh, Trump administration who was sort of pushed out because uh, reports they did not agree with the sort of more draconian approach from the president on, on, on this. And so uh, sort of the insider, right, he, he brought, brought it, the governor brought this the, this gentleman, um, Matthew Doherty, into the fold, if you will, in yeah. California. Uh, he also sent a letter to the president saying, look, um, yeah, you want to help out with homelessness? Like, give us some more housing vouchers, right? That's He's called that the quickest thing you could do to reduce homelessness population in, in California. Uh, also unveiled uh, the spending of, this, of the state dollars that um, – Lawmakers approved this past year uh, to give go to cities and counties about $650 million and said, look, those communities that want to spend it more quickly, uh, we'll even give you a little bit of, bon- of, a, of a bonus on that. Um, and so yeah. and, these, and yeah. importantly, accused um, the Trump administration of a bureaucratic roadblock that was holding yeah. up those funds. Right. Everything has been framed in a anti-Trump manner in terms of Newsom's homelessness response this week. Yeah. Me and you were talking a little bit about this before we we went on air. Do you think this is smart or dumb political strategy from from, uh, from Governor Newsom? In that, in if those I those are your to, only two options, right? In that binary, I I think this is this is smarter than dumber, if you will. Um, mm. and, and I think that's that, like a great campaign slogan. We're smarter than we're dumber. <laughs> that's great. Twenty twenty, vote for me. Um, so, um, but I say that because um, I think it would be very easily, and I think that generally what has been going on up to this point has been a purely reactive response um, by the the, the governor uh, and the administration to what the president has been uh, very uh, sort of uh, uh, saying at the least, right? The president's rhetoric. I think in this way it sets up some sort of. Uh, idea look like here are all the things that we're trying to do here are all the things that we think you can do to help if you say you want to help uh you know and uh if you don't do those things well um you know you're not doing what what needs to be done and so um i think the fact that there is some appears to be some coordinated preemptive strategy here is a smarter way to handle it than the alternative which would have been uh just wait to see if and when the president does something and talk about how uh, how mad you are you know, I when I read that he had hired Doherty and then I learned that he um, that Doherty would be wouldn't be relocating to California sure. was was a contract hire and would be in charge of, I guess, federal interfacing between California and the federal government, um, which based off his 
dismissal slash resignation might not have the best relationship with uh, people sure. in the Trump administration anyway. Right, right. Tough to do that as anything less than a political move from the Newsom administration. Governor Brown was very strategic in what he battled Trump on, avoiding um, confrontations he thought in the long run would be costly and harmful to California, risking Trump's ire. Um, whereas Newsom's approach has been pretty much on any front where I can hit Trump, I'm going to hit Trump. I, and I also think regardless, the homelessness numbers are falling on Newsom. Like there's no way Newsom's going to dust off blame on Trump on on who owns this issue. So it's not, yeah. I don't think it's totally fair that Newsom will completely own this issue. Of course, right. It's been building for quite some time. Yeah. Local governments are involved too, obviously. Um, but I, I don't know. It just seems need, kind of needlessly political to me. I think uh, the president started it by being extremely political on this issue. Um, and uh, it's better to try to preempt that than it would be to let him control that n- narrative the whole time. So, And I think the mindset of who started it is yeah. uh, not the most befitting of uh, elected political officials. But let's but let's quickly before we move on here, let's just talk about what we expect to happen, at least in the legislature for um uh, or the state's response to this issue beyond the, the, the Newsom-Trump fight. Um, so I think, um, you know, we have another surplus uh, coming um, in the budget this year. I would, I think that there's going to be certainly a lot more money, um, perhaps even as much as it was this, this, this previous year or even more yeah. to, to, to address uh, homelessness issues. I would also not be surprised to see potentially some regulatory, you know, relief more. Um, there was a bill that passed the end of uh, the end of the session uh, last year or this 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 year that um, wiped away some CEQA rules and, and some environmental rules um, for citing uh, shelters um, and homeless housing, permanent housing in L.A. Um, there was a big court case uh, that that the city just won based on the fact that this law passed, uh, wiping away a challenge to that, um, a local challenge to uh, the city's homelessness um, streamlining rules. And so um, I would not be shocked to see that being expanded. Um, maybe to LA County, maybe to just the big metro areas, or maybe even statewide uh, at this point. Sure. Uh, I think one other fight that you can look forward to in 2020, I think it's pretty indisputable that there's going to be a bevy of new money. It will be how flexible that money can be spent by local governments. That will be one of the the big issues that um, defines the homelessness funding debate, at least in Sacramento here. So right now, homelessness funding is spread across a bunch of different state departments, and there's often different strings attached to you know what the state prison system can do, to what health and human services can do with homelessness money. There's a movement to make, you know, let's just consolidate this into one big pool that local governments can use for um, preventing eviction, for building shelters, for kind of whatever. Moving on to the third most important story of 2020. The three, uh, of, three of four are very important. We have not ranked these. That's what you made no. clear very earlier. Yes. Just want to make it's, clear that we're, uh, you know, just every, all our friends are equally important. That's that's all I'm trying to say. I think I actually did say earlier that the homelessness issue is is I actually think kind of far and away the most important. But OK, I, well, I, 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 out of the remainder, I'm, you know, coldly indifferent. Agnostic. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's deja vu all over again. It's rent control on the ballot. It's rent control in our in the ballot it's in the legislature. It's everywhere. Rent control. Happen. Yes. Yeah. Last year, 2018. Uh, much of my life and your life, Liam, was devoted to writing about Prop 10. This was an initiative put on the ballot by the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, 
um, spearheaded by progressive firebrand. That's what I'm going to call him. Okay. Uh, Michael Weinstein, head of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, it would have uh, allowed cities to um, significantly expand rent control protections should they choose to. Uh, that initiative lost by an overwhelming margin, nearly 20 points. That has not deterred Michael Weinstein. He, they just submitted the signatures, right? They just submitted over a million signatures to get a uh, similar but different in some key ways um, rent control measure to go on the 2020 ballot. So almost certainly uh, this is going to qualify. And that means unless the AIDS Healthcare Foundation decides to remove the measure, it's going to appear uh, on your ballot again next November. And let's quickly go over some of the differences between uh, Prop 10 and this new initiative, because part of the reason um, Prop 10 failed was, I think, that the structure of that initiative. Yeah, there are no rules. Yeah. Yes. Was easy to push back against um, because it was very ambiguous what this would actually do. Um, And Weinstein has tried to counter that in the in the latest uh, iteration of this. Right. So this is a bit more prescriptive uh, of a rent control regime that cities would still have to be able to still opt into. So it wouldn't be automatic everywhere around the state. But a city would have to vote to say, yes, I want to do this. So it, with these provisions that automatically apply to uh, buildings uh, older than 15 years in the community that, that in, in which they were effective. Um, also, it would... Um, uh, uh, property owners that rent out two or fewer homes would be exempt. Um, and then I think most significantly, um, this also does include a provision uh, for what's known as vacancy control, meaning that when right yeah. now under state law, it is uh, landlords are allowed, have to be allowed to raise rents to whatever they want at the market rate. Once the tenant moves out, this rent control regime would restrict that policy and say a landlord could increase rents by 15% over what um, over what um, uh, uh, their previous tenant was paying for a, uh, a a property when a new tenant came in. And vacancy control, kind of the crown jewel for uh, policy solutions for anti-gentrification activists and tenants' rights groups. Um, and obviously, on the flip side, um, the most detested portion of a possible rent control regime regime by landlords and developers. Exactly. And that's why I think it's uh, for well, one of the reasons I think it's going to be tough to see a sort of a compromise to take this off the ballot. I think that that was a red line, you know, in 2018, when these uh, negotiations between Weinstein tenant groups and landlords were were happening over Prop 10. I think that remains a red line um, for everybody uh, going into 2020. I think another reason why it's on it's unlikely from my perspective right now that there's going to be a compromise to remove this off the ballot is because the legislature did act in a significant way uh, in this past year, passing this uh, rent cap legislation, capping rent statewide um, at uh, 5% plus inflation um, for the next decade. And to me, not only is that uh, aimed at, um, uh, you know, sort of the most aggressive or egregious uh, uh, rent increases and prohibiting them from 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 occurring, but also uh, lawmakers, uh, you know, uh, feel like they've they've done some work uh, here, yeah. and uh, and it may take some of the pressure off from their perspective uh, to pass something else. Number two, unranked, yes. uh, most important twenty 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 housing story. Uh, it is the return of one of the other most popular segments of our podcast, the creatively titled "Housing on the Ballot." Very creative. 
Yes. What, one of yeah. your finest efforts. Yes. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. We've talked about rent control as certainly something that looks like it's going to appear on the ballot. You mentioned split roll. I'll, I'll do the, the, the two second spiel on this. Uh, this is the measure that would um, allow for the increase in property tax payments from businesses um, and uh, industrial sites by taxing those at uh, their market rate rather than the rate that uh, based on the time when they were purchased. Split roll because it splits, doesn't no changes to homeowners. So it splits the roll from uh, residential property and business property. To view that through a finer housing lens, an interesting part of the debate around split roll will be whether it improves or exacerbates the fiscalization of land use. And just to quickly walk through the mechanics of this, this is the stupid analogy that I've used a billion times. But um, if you're a city right now, uh, you would typically get way more tax revenue if you approved a new target on a vacant piece of land than if you approved an apartment building. That's partly because of Prop 13, right? Prop 13 is going to kind of permanently cap your property taxes, whereas with the target, you get sales Sales taxes and and other taxes too. Mm -hmm. Now, you might even get really great property taxes from uh, that aforesaid target. Um, So that'll be an interesting specific housing wrinkle to split roll. What else do we have on the ballot? Well, uh, a few other things. I think one that probably, in, in, let's do this in terms of like, likeliness to appear, right? Yeah. Um, the, the California Association of Realtors, um, we maybe have another redo of a 2018 uh, housing ballot yeah. measure. Uh, you may recall uh, Proposition 5, which was a measure that the realtors sponsored uh, back back in 2018, also crushed, by the way, uh, that would have allowed older homeowners to take a portion of their property tax benefits under Prop 13 when buying a new home. Um, the realtors are back with a new version of that, uh, trying to correct one of the major weaknesses of it, which was that it was a huge fiscal hit to state and local budgets. And so uh, if this was going to cost the state money by allowing sort of more portability, if that's a technical term of uh, property uh, uh, Prop 13 benefits, uh, they now have some issues, uh, uh, measures that would uh, 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 increase funding, including uh, something very near and dear to my heart, uh, which ends um, the, in many ways, the inheritance exclusion that that folks get when they inherit their uh, parents' properties. Big, huge story on this uh, last year in 2018. I did Jeff Bridges, for instance, uh, inherited his uh, his family's um, Malibu beach house, renting it out for a huge amount while also paying little to nothing in property taxes. That's because of this rule. The realtors' potential new ballot measure would get rid of that, and the funding would go towards, of course, uh, uh, paying for this new portability measure that they have. I, I think, crucially, the initial L- uh, legislative analyst office analysis on this said that localities would actually gain money. Yeah, so much um, kinder than the last two years ago. or Much, much kinder, yes. Yeah. So it's not just signature gathering that can get measures on the ballot. The legislature often can do that on their own. Uh, I would say at this point, we're looking at potentially two um, if I had a handicap, um, ballot measures related to housing, the legislature would 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 put on for November. Uh, one being um, related to the governor's uh, task force on homelessness. Uh, this was something that, if you listen to our previous episode, was referenced by Mayor uh, Daryl Steinberg of Sacramento, one of the mm-hmm. co-chairs of the homelessness task force, wanting to sort of reprogram some of the money that the um, uh, comes from the millionaires tax uh, and funding mental health services, a supplemental income tax would want to change that in some way 
to allow for uh, more of that money to be spent on homelessness services. And then secondly, there's a measure uh, authored by uh, Senator Ben Allen uh, of the L.A. Santa Monica area um, here. This would repeal a provision in the state constitution known as Article 34, a uh, measure that passed in 1950 that made it uh, required a public vote for uh, public housing in a community. And so I did a deep piece on this, I think the beginning of 2019. We haven't discussed this yet on the podcast. I assume we, we might at some point uh, if this measure progresses through the legislature, uh, but it kind of a, uh, in some ways a, a relic of the of the past and that it, it's not super prohibitive these days yeah. in public housing, but it still adds some costs um, and is, you know, comes at a time or, or the, you know, it was, uh, you know, some, some, some racist intent, uh, some racist outcomes as a result of this provision being in the state constitution. And so I think even for just some um, kind of, uh, 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 even if it were just dead letter, I think there'd be many folks who'd, who'd want to remove it from the constitution as well. Yes, definitely symbolic value at the at the okay. very least. Now to our last top 2020 housing storyline, which is probably the most uh, obvious one that we haven't mentioned yet. I think I want to frame this one as what housing production bill will we see? Um, because yeah. I am fairly confident that we are going to see something. The Newsom administration has made it clear that, hey, in 2019, we did tackle tenant protections. Um, we also increased funding significantly for affordable housing and for uh, homelessness prevention and the construction of new shelters. Uh, what we got to do is make it easier to build to build for developers to build housing, period. That was what was missing from last year. So mm -hmm. this has been a focal point of uh, Newsom, the Newsom administration, at least rhetorically going into 2020. You have state legislative leaders, uh, Senator uh, Tony Atkins, who leads the Senate, uh, Speaker Anthony Rendon, who leads uh, the Assembly, both saying that they want to focus on production in 2020. All the housing policymakers or the notable housing policymakers in the legislature have talked that, yes, 2020 is the production year. There's, I think there, it's fair to say there's a lot of momentum behind it. The real question is, what is it actually going to look like? Agree or disagree? No, I think it's a, a very good uh, summation. Um, and, and I think we're going to know pretty early on, frankly, um, some indication of this. Uh, so Senate Bill 50, again, the bill that would uh, upzone uh, near transit or increase density near near uh, near transit and in job centers uh, and also in single family neighborhoods um, is was shelved and shelved in the beginning to get a little wonky, shelved in the beginning of a two year session uh, in your first house of uh, your house of origin means that it, the bill can come back. Uh, and uh, the Senator Wiener, uh, the author from San Francisco, has said that it will, but it faces a very quick deadline. Uh, has yes. to get off the Senate floor by the end of January. Um, and so this wouldn't necessarily fast track it beyond, um, you know, it would come, you know, still face the same deadlines to advance uh, out of the assembly and become law at the end of the year, right, end of the summer. Uh, but uh, it does now face a very quick deadline to advance in uh, and advance, clear the Senate for the first time uh, in January. Uh, also, too, you know, I think a, a good... Um, uh, sort of warning for this for state lawmakers is oftentimes we've heard in the past a lot of ideas, hey, we want to change the California Environmental Quality Act. It's too hard for this project that we really like to get built, right? Whether it's homeless housing or affordable housing or housing that makes it easy to bike or whatever, right? Some project, yeah. right? 
And, and as it goes through the process, it gets whittled down and whittled down and whittled down. And all of a sudden, at the end of the day, it were to pass, but only really a handful of projects can actually qualify for it. Yeah. So you could very easily see something like this happening with an, an, a built increased density. Oh, it must be within, you know, three blocks of a transit stop or you have to pay prevailing wage or, you know, has to be lead certified buildings because we needed to be environmentally friendly or reserve, you know, 80 percent for uh, low income residents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None and there's none of this to say these are all bad policy aims, but it's just a matter of the 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 the, the, the fact of the matter is when you start adding these sorts of requirements to uh, to take advantage of a state program, uh, the less and less likely, or the fewer and fewer projects will be able to do that. Exactly. And case in point, uh, Senate Bill 330, the uh, moratorium on moratorium bill that tried to limit what cities could do to delay or obstruct new housing, at least that was the stated intent, that got whittled down significantly from its um, original bill language. And you could easily see something like that happening to Senate Bill 50. Uh, anything else on on Senate Bill 50 or production bills or uh, anything? No, let's, let's, uh, let's get to our uh, uh, podcast repeat uh, interviewee, Ben Metcalf. So we're here with Ben Metcalf, the former director of California Department of Housing and Community Development and now founder of a new consulting firm, Stronger Foundations. Ben, thank you so much for your three-peat appearance on the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Hey, uh, it's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I feel like, you know, I knew you guys, you know, back when. You were, you know, two rookie housing beat journalists just trying to scrape it by out of the back of your van kind of thing. and. Back in the day, you're getting you know, still getting tripped up on what the the A and Rena actually stood for, and, and now you've you figured it all out. Uh, so I'm happy uh, to be back. I feel honored. We so do, we've all gotten older together. Then we 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 have not had much success selling mixtapes of the podcast out of the back of our van outside HCD, though. So if you could help us out with that. <laughs> Uh, I actually thought the, the best. You, you guys have been doing these great live uh, shows, and I, I confess I haven't been to any yet. But but I but I loved uh, one of one of the one of the lead-ins for one of them. You got introduced as doing for um, uh, yeah, you're doing for housing policy what Click and Clack uh, did for auto repair, and I thought that was just brilliant. Mm. It's, a, it's high high That's compliments. It's it, it, it a long lifelong dream of mine to be a mechanic from Boston, so uh, I'm glad that that, <laughs> that comparison is taking root. Um, so, Ben, the first question for you is clearly the most important question that we're going to ask, uh, which is, um, what is your pick for avocado of the year? Uh, so uh, you got a lot to choose from, um, but I, you know, I thought about it, scratched my head a little bit, and I really uh, liked the uh, the cat one. So you have this crazy oh. situation, right, where you have this guy in um, you know, Santa Clara County who uh, uh, wants to rent out an apartment for his cats and pays fifteen hundred dollars a month. I thought that was uh, just totally spectacular, was, and I, I cast my vote there. And would that um, cat seated? Would that count towards San Jose's arena uh, requirement? Uh, yeah, it, it, it would. Uh, really? Yeah, you know, to the extent that it's a new unit, uh, you know, it's uh, even though it's housing cats. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would prefer a higher and better use for the apartment than a couple of cats. And it does have, uh, I think the article uh, that uh, it got profiled, it did say they had Apple TV in there, too. So it does seem like the cats probably aren't fully realizing the potential of what they've got. You know, in a moment where, like, the housing shortage is what it is, the fact that people would pay, uh, you know, pay to house their cats in a separate unit, I thought, uh, does, does encapsulate well the avocado-ness uh, of the moment. Uh Okay, I want to transition to the to the other uh, biggest question uh, that we could possibly have for you, which is um, how do we fix the housing crisis in California? Oh no! Oh, you think I have an answer to that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, who else would? You're the you're the man, right? You're the guy who's supposed yeah. to figure this out. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I definitely you know I said I stepped out of state government. Um, you know, a few a few. A couple of months back, and I, you know, I feel really proud of the work that I did um, in the almost four years there, and 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 really feel like we got a lot done um, in terms of enforcement, in terms of regulatory, in terms of new funding. And if you compare, you know, where the state is today on housing compared to where it was four years ago, it's just it's just night and day. I don't think anybody four years ago would ever have imagined that we've been able to sort of have the state flex its muscles and get so involved and have so much impact. But I was, you know, I, I was characterizing it to, uh, to somebody else and sort of saying, it, you know, but I still feel like at the end of the day we're, we're still only showing up, you know, with a knife to the gunfight. Um, and it's a really nice, shiny knife, but it's still just a knife. And so there is a, a degree to which you know, all those trend lines are still going in the wrong way. Um, and everything we're trying to throw at this problem it just still doesn't feel commensurate with, with what's in front of us. Um, so, you know, uh, like... A lot of what I've been trying to do since leaving the state is just spend more time sort of thinking big picture, like what are some of the root causes on all this and how do we turn the tide a little bit? And even if you have to think about this as a multi-year, multi-decade problem, like what are the things that you can start to put in place? And, you know, at the end of the day, like I, I think we live in a capitalist society. I think that ultimately, you know, we, we need to figure out a way to get the market to be able to solve this really pressing social problem. And you, you need to use public policy to induce the market to to participate in this area more robustly, but it's it's not been tenable that you've had a fraction of the housing getting built every year for the last few decades that we know we need it. But let me push a little bit back on, on what you said at the start, which is like, wow, it's night and day in, in terms of the state, you know, and, and, and housing. I mean, I think if you talk to your person on the ground, while they may be aware of some legislation or policy being passed, they see, you know, homelessness numbers likely significantly higher than they were four years ago. Um, costs uh, at best, uh, you know, not really being ameliorated. Um, uh, you know, what all, so how, I mean, I understand again from the policy perspective that things may have shifted uh, in the conversation, but on the ground, I don't know anyone's feeling like things are better than they were four years ago. Yeah, it's all a matter of perspective, right? So if you talk about the homelessness, you go to LA and Mayor Garcetti has said this very clearly and very repeatedly. They are, they have made incredible strides moving folks out of homelessness, like their exits out of homelessness are a multiple of where they used to be, and they're very proud of that. You have cities that have. Have, have had taken incredible strides to get uh, chronic homelessness uh, and veterans, for example, has really come down precipitously. But when you have an inflow that dwarfs the progress you're making on the back end, it's hard for people to see that. So does that negate you know, the policy gains? No, but it just it makes it much harder to tell the story. And it also does force you, I think, fairly to sort of say, well, is there some, something else or something more or something differently that we should also be doing? A lot of the legislation that was passed while you were uh, head of HCD and that HCD was in charge of implementing um, was geared towards making it easier for developers to 
uh, get new housing projects approved um, and to actually build them, right? That was a lot of the 2017 housing package. And you guys did some stuff kind of administratively towards that end. I've been surprised that the uh, permit numbers this year um, are down from what they were last year and nowhere near what Governor Newsom hoped they would be. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that, I mean, I think there is some concern. I mean, I, I you know, the question of why we're just building less is um, probably a piece of that has to do with a lot of institutional investors that are looking at building new market rate housing are getting really nervous about a possible downturn. Um, I mean, housing is cyclical, and a lot of folks are looking at uh, reading the numbers and sort of saying, hey, do I really want to put my equity at risk? And folks are less willing to place bets, uh, multi-year bets on the entitlement process on, on new new projects, um, just given, given some uh, uneasiness in the, in the sort of macroeconomic realm. Um, but the reality on the housing package is most of that stuff that, that got put into motion, so, you know, passed in 2017, enacted in 2018, uh, some of it began to fall into place in 2019. Uh, much of it is tied to the regional housing needs allocation or arena process, which, which, which um, you know, won't really start showing up until jurisdictions start doing their six-cycle housing elements, which is still a couple years out. So a lot of that was really long-term, like, you know, it, it may be a decade before you really see the impact of, of that as you know, zoning plans get changed and people on that basis then go and, and submit applications and pull permits for new housing. So, so me, yeah, it's a long-term play. So let me let me talk about that. I mean, so you are, a, I think, a much more optimistic take on this RENA process, the regional housing needs allocation, the process by which cities have to zone for a certain amount of housing-based population growth uh, for every eight years. Um, there's been a big development in this in this way in the Southern California region, um, a significantly high number, 1.3 million homes that the region got. Um, now there's been an effort uh, among local governments there to actually push more of that growth towards uh, towards kind of coastal job centers rather than inland, which is a big development. But you know, uh, let's just take a, 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 an example from that. Um, Huntington Beach, obviously a city that has been fighting the state um, for housing over housing issues for close to a year uh, uh, now, longer. Um, but kind of really in the spotlight over a year now with 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 a couple lawsuits on this, they have to zone potentially for thirteen thousand new homes uh, under this plan. And given their history, I don't really see any path to them doing that anytime soon. So you know, why embrace a process where you have cities like that in that situation where you know it may take, um, as you sort of reference, a decade or so to see any kind of progress. Um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in building in that city or allowing for, for more growth in that city rather than doing something more direct, uh, given, the, uh, given the need that we have here? Well, I think Huntington Beach is really like a rogue jurisdiction. I mean, they, they have okay, taken a like, very confrontational like approach. They're su- actively suing the state on a whole bunch of different lawsuits. I don't think they're typical. I, I think, you know, there are many, many, the, the vast majority of jurisdictions in Southern California, for example, they, they want to comply with state housing law, and their local electeds are expecting that their staff and their city attorneys will get them to be compliant with state housing law. And I should say, the state has made the consequences of noncompliance much more painful. And I don't know, would Huntington Beach have gone down this path, you know, a few years back if they had fully appreciated uh, how painful it might get, that the state attorney general would be coming after them, that there would be various funding sources that would be potentially getting held up. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they still would have. But I, I think a lot of other jurisdictions are looking at what Huntington Beach is going through and saying, I, I don't want to do that. I guess the, the broader issue is, is there a, another way of holding cities accountable that isn't so wedded to a process that, referring to RENA, 
that has been so historically flawed and that even if it was working, would still take a long time to actually see change on the ground? Could you do something else entirely? I think you could, but I want to just say, like, I came into my work at ACD, I will just say, as a arena skeptic. I really had perceived in my past life, you know, working as a developer, looking at it from, the, from my perch on the federal side, as just a lot of paperwork that didn't seem to have a lot of teeth behind it. I think, you know, I, I guess I would say I have become a bit of a arena convert, and I actually do think that the combination of having a variety of penalties and consequences on the one hand, and on the other, uh, empowering HCD to really look at this stuff with real scrutiny, um, and the change of the strength, the various bills that have been strengthened over the last few years, mean that Rena actually does have some some punch. And yes, it is slower than having the state, for example, wave its magic wand and just mandate overnight, you know, that certain sites just automatically get upzoned. But it does have the advantage of really bringing forcing jurisdictions to own that upzoning process. They ultimately are the ones who have to make the decisions about which sites are going to be zoned to accommodate that growth that they're required to take. It implicates them in the success of it. And I just got to say, like, I think there is some advantage to that down the road. There are a lot of ways that cities um, can uh, subvert or undercut um, state mandates that come down, which they are not implicated into in the same way that Reno ultimately does. And I think, you know, it's you know, I, th- I think there are advantages to that. And, and now there may be trade-offs. So I think, you know, one counterexample um, that I'm a big fan of, obviously, is just all the legislation that we've done the last few years on custody drilling units. I think that is an example where the state simply just did come in and say, hey, it's not tenable anymore for single-family homes to be uh, homeowners to be, um, you know, for it be prohibited for them to go ahead and add a second unit. We, we just need to go ahead and wave that magic wand and make, make it happen. I think that one really has worked well, will work well. It was a great exercise of state authority. Um, and I'm certainly interested to see what happens with SB50, which is sort of a, the next extension of that premise, right, which is like, hey, if we're going to be building in certain kinds of high-priority areas, like uh, right around transit nodes, it's just not tenable for that growth to be super low density, for example. We need to do something different. Um, but I think, you know, the state has to be careful about that. Um, and I don't know that just because you want to have push on ADUs means that you're upzoning around transit doesn't mean you still don't want to uh, lean in on, on the arena piece. I think they, they actually both work well together. You brought up SB50, uh, which is the, the bill uh, shelved that uh, could come back or likely to come back to some, some version in January that would increase the density mandate or increase the mandate for density around, um, around transit. Um, do you think that should pass? Um, yeah, I think there's some version of it should should move forward. I think it, it is a reasonable to basically say to cities, we need you to, t- to accommodate a lot more growth, and we need to make sure that there's a certain minimum amount of growth that already that that we um, that has to happen around transit um, or in other high high priority areas. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, I think it it would be useful if that process somehow did intersect with the arena. I mean, a lot of cities are going to be going through a big effort to try and figure out where they want to steer their future growth. And so I think some of the work that the author and other advocates are doing right now is trying to trying to think about how it, how we can bring those two parts together, the re, arena housing element process with any state mandated, mandated upzoning, and I, I would encourage that. So how, how would those two go together? 
Well, I think, for example, you could imagine a city getting a little bit, of, or some cities or some areas getting some flexibility, or you know, counting. Again, a lot of cities are, are looking in Southern California, for example, are saying, "Geez, I have a really big arena allocation. I've got to accommodate." And in a way that makes something like SB 50 seem more palatable, because they can actually count the upzoning that SB 50 mandates towards the arena, the arena numbers. So, with the one state mandate, solves another state requirement. Um, and there, there may be some way to basically say, hey, if you're doing your arena or housing element uh, upzoning process, you can have a little bit of flexibility in certain kinds of sites for uh, where you steer that growth as long as it achieves the state's goals and is done through the housing element process and subject to the same HCD you know, state review that happens. Your replacement as head of the state housing department has not been named yet. Uh, what advice would you give whoever that person ends up being? I mean, first of all, I think it's a. I think this is a genuinely an exciting time to be at the state, um, and there is a window of opportunity that should not be understated with this governor, with this legislature, with this political moment to really put some big things on the table that are going to be really helpful. And honestly, also just to drive forward on the on the good stuff that's already in play and really make sure that we're implementing that that well. Um, I think that um, you know, I, I mean, I would say. One of the challenges that we have struggled with at the state level has been uh, less than a fully strategic approach on housing. I think a lot of it has been catch-as-catch-can, and I think we have also suffered from sort of taking on a whole bunch of things all at once. And so part of what I would counsel any you know, anybody sort of at the helm in Sacramento is let's really be clear about the long-term play here what we bite off this year, what we bite off next year, and let's really focus on the things that we've committed to already uh, put in motion that we that we double down on those and implement them in a quality way. So what? So drilling down on that, what would yeah. you prioritize and what would you cast aside? Um, well, I, I would definitely on my on my short list, I would certainly put the arena and housing element work. I think that's a big project for HCD. Um, there's a huge new body of work that has landed on uh, their desk, and I think a real, real opportunity to take that seriously and do it earnestly, um, unlike the way it's been done before. Um, I would also say that there's just a lot of money that's going out right now with the budget funds, with Propositions 1 and 2. Uh, I really love what the governor has done around state public lands um, and disposing of those. I think uh, HD would be crazy not to really uh, 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 make that go well and get a lot of um, and get get as much of that out as quickly as possible in the most effective way that it can. Um, so I would put that on my short list, and then I would probably put ADUs on there. I think we are at a little bit of an inflection point on accessory dwelling units, and I think there's an opportunity to really effectively market that um, to homeowners up and down the state as an opportunity to quickly and efficiently get more people into the homes that are already out there. Uh, so, Ben, I want to back up to something that you said a little bit ago, which seemed to imply that there was some sort of lack of focus or, or lack of, I guess, deep direction uh, in some state housing efforts. And you gave, we spoke before, right after you, you left your position, a relatively, in my view, and I think your view too, mild criticism of the governor um, uh, you know, about that in his first year and saying that you think he, he would um, be able to work that out in future years. Um, but when I interviewed the governor for Australia, kind of assessing his first year um, uh, 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 on housing issues, he took reacted really strongly and said, you know, we'll actually, we did go deep, and all the things we wanted to do, we did. And I, I guess I want to hear from you what you kind of made, made of that made of that exchange. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, you. I certainly agree that the governor, by and large, did put forward a pretty strong agenda in his first year. Like, everything that he um, rolled out as he took office in his inaugural address and his first budget statement, uh, by and large, he got that stuff done. Um, I think where, you know, where we came up short in the first year was probably in harnessing the energy in the legislature for new ideas, uh, number one, and number two, really mapping out a strategic plan for the future. And I think, you know, that is, I think, harder. Like, what, okay, we took a, we got some good bites of this apple uh, in 2019. What's the plan for 2020? What's the plan for 2021? I think the other reality um which is undeniable, is that this governor has had a very big and broad and bold agenda that goes beyond housing. Um, certainly housing is somewhere near the top of the list, but there are you know, more than a handful, a couple of handfuls of other really high-priority things for him and for his administration that he's trying to all get done at the same time. And um, I know he campaigned on all that stuff. I know he wanted to deliver on it all in the first year. But I think it is hard for any human being um, in any elected office to be able to really push forward on so many different fronts all at the same time. And so that may be a trade-off that he wants to make, but I think it's just a reality. And he is probably sensitive to, the, to that, part, probably because there's, you know, he recognizes there's some truth to it, right? Like, you, when you do a lot, you cannot go so deep on everything. Well, and just to follow up a little bit, I mean, you know, there were some things. I mean, yeah, like there were certainly some notable uh, funding uh, uh, um, uh, boosts. Uh, and some other changes, you know, the rent cap bill being, a, you know, a notable uh, policy shift. Um, but, you know, I mean, compared to the scale of the promises, you know, 500,000 units a year, uh, we're going to go after cities for their transportation dollars. Um, you know, these yep. sorts of very, very, very big things. These were not things that actually got done, right? right. Um, or not meaningful progress towards those things. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, again, that's that sort Sort of my, my point here is we, we need to, you know, both the governor does, you know, and the other state leadership, I think that the housing advocacy organizations would all do well to map out, you know, what is the roadmap that, that looks like for how we make meaningful progress on this stuff. But the approach can't be that we try and do a zillion things every year and, and do them all in a sort of half-assed way. Like, the approach has to be, you know, let's take a few things and really go deep and hard and make sure we're implementing them in a quality way. So, because I don't think the nature of government is not that you can succeed. I mean, you, when you hand, you know, 50 different things to HCD, I guarantee you, you're not going to get any of them done that well. You have to be able to prioritize those things and say, okay, what are the top three? Okay, after the top three, what are the top 10, 10 things we're really going to drive forward and make some lasting, have some lasting impact? And otherwise, that stuff just washes away. As soon as, you know, um, the next leadership team comes in or as soon as the next, you know, major event hits, you have an earthquake, you have a reset, I don't know what, something else. And everybody pivots to something else. All that just washes away. So, what what was one policy initiative that um, was kind of thrust on HCD that you thought, you know, what this this is the type of thing that is going to get washed away when the next um, uh, shiny object hits? Yeah, for me, I'd say I point to one example, which is on the funding program. So we we got a lot of new funding programs done uh, this year, and new money into affordable housing. But every time we did it, it was a, through a different funding vehicle, right? So, like, right. the homelessness money is a perfect example. Uh, HD has successfully and happily administered a homelessness program uh, based on the federal funding model uh, for, for, for several years now. And, um, you know, another chunk of homelessness dollars lands, and not only is it given to um, 
a coordinating council to administer rather than a state department. But it's it's not it's even further um, modified from a previous round. So you just don't have consistent programmatic consistency. So the intent is good, more money coming out, but there's not a oh let's just work with the funding program funding vehicle we already have and, and improve upon that. It seems to be it seemed to be let's always build a new program or a new vehicle or come up with a whole set of new statutory authorities for how we spend this new given pot of money that we've made available. I want to ask a little bit about um, housing politics, what you learned about kind of the politics of trying to get the policy changed. Um, and I reference, I know you and I have discussed this many times, um, but, you know, early on in your tenure, there was a dust up with, with you and the state building and construction trades, the construction workers union, super powerful interest group um, on housing, uh, a bit of a dust up over over um, prevailing wage issues, uh, sort of uh, the union level wage deals when it comes to uh, uh, triggering that when it comes to passing some housing policy. Uh, I'm I'm wondering what you what you learned from that experience and uh, and what it says about um, kind of the the nature of housing politics in the state. Um, well, I would say for sure, you know. Good policy doesn't necessarily translate uh, to good politics, and um, uh, good politics can be very facilitative of good policy, right? So uh, one of the things that I learned quickly in my first year on the job was that there are very powerful interests in Sacramento who care about housing, but uh, who don't um, necessarily always approach it from the same lens that um, other housers do. And... um, you know, it, the housing advocacy landscape in particular, I don't know how unique it is, but in particular is very fractured with lots of different interests that care passionately about housing but see the trade-offs in, in perfectly different ways that nobody else agrees with. And so you, you have this you have this setup for this sort of perfect detente where, like, every all the housing groups agree adamantly on the principle of doing more on housing, but absolutely and stridently oppose you know everything that every other group puts forward <laughs> and so you know the solution there is I, I mean I think what we've seen in Sacramento on housing is either you go <laughs> like under the radar with stuff that's either small ball or doesn't attract a lot of attention again I put the AD, ADU stuff in that bucket or you uh, make something as big a package as you possibly can and put the governor and the legislative leaders um, very strongly behind it and push as hard as you can on something that's sort of too big to fail to get through the legislative process. Mm-hmm. But even so, on that, you know, there are certain constituencies that are going to have to be um, satisfied um, in order to get that political support to get the votes. What do you make of the uh, the kind of the dispute now between uh, the, the building trades and the governor? You know, there was a the most recent Democratic convention, the building trades were passing out newspapers, being critical of the the governor's, uh, I suppose, um, efforts on, on on worker issues. What do you what do you make of this? I think, as it relates to the building trades and housing in particular, yeah. I mean, I yeah. think this is there's a piece of this which is just sort of like personality conflict, or um, probably you know the governor coming in and not doing his relationship building and legwork. I mean, I. I know there was some reporting on this that there were just some sort of missed opportunities to reach out to key leaders in the building trades and give them the courtesy of a heads up when maybe the governor wasn't going to move forward with something they wanted. I mean, I don't think that the 
bills that the governor vetoed, certainly from where I sit, sat, it was not a surprise that he vetoed those bills. Um, I, I think they were, you know, he was taking positions that would have been similar to his predecessor in office um, in terms of, you know, extensions of prevailing wage or whatnot. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, rep- I think the damage, the other damage is going to, is repairable by investment in relationship building. Um, and I think at the end of the day, this governor is going to want to be um, cooperative and uh, work well with the building trades, and the building trades are going to work, work well with this governor. So I think it's a road bump in a relationship that will probably resolve itself uh, pretty quickly. Are there too many cooks in the housing policy kitchen in the Newsom administration? You were one of the cooks. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, I think what the. I think the governor understands that he needs to, and has understood for a while, that he needs to really centralize the housing policy work. And there, there is some effort to do that now in uh, trying to find my, my replacement. But yeah, I think there, and this is, I don't think it's uncommon for a new administration. I think what's uncommon is that it has taken as long as it has to resolve. But you definitely had sort of various power centers when I was there that had equities in housing. You had folks in the governor's office itself. You had folks in the Department of Finance. You had, you had folks in uh, CalHFA and the Business Consumer Services and Housing. You had folks in the governor's office of planning and research that all had some purview on housing stuff and all had some stake in the outcome. And, and, and it made hard to move quickly on stuff because it wasn't always clear who was on first. Ben, is there anything else that you want to communicate to our, our legions of engaged uh, uh, housing followers? Uh, probably you're the, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the king, right? So what is they want? The public wants to know what the king has to say. Oh no, no! I'm, I have I have put my crown down. I am I am happy to go back <laughs> to life, on, sort of like you know life on the farm here. Um, you know, like, I, like I, Cincinnati, right? Like, yeah, like Governor Brown. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm a, I have been called a malignant optimist uh, by people who have worked with me and know me well. I I, I sort of continue to have hope that we can turn the tide, that there are really good solutions that are out there, even in the face of daunting odds. Um, getting out of government has also been helpful to me as a reminder that, you know, good ideas don't always originate and start in, in the political sphere. Uh, there's a lot of great creativity, a lot of great entrepreneurial stuff that's going out, out in the field every day. But I think part of the job of a lot of us who sort of are able to um, – crossover between those worlds is to try and help find that innovative practice and lift it up and and make it easier to get supported in the in the public public realm um and so that's a piece of work that i'm um i'm really enjoying getting to work on now um and i think you know some of the stuff just in my interactions the last couple of months talking with practitioners that are doing interesting innovative work gives me hope because uh i think i think there is some good stuff that's going going on out there and i think there is a political policy window to scale up some, some new approaches and to push hard on the work that we've got done, um, got in the mix already. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the podcast for the third time. Are you sick of it yet? Uh, yeah, no, I think I'm going to, uh, maybe I'll take a little, um, you know, give me a shelter leave of absence for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> take care, Ben. Yep, you bet. 